Welcome to Marvel's Voices. I'm your host, Angelique Roche. Our guest on the show today is not just my colleague, but someone I've had the privilege to spend hours and hours and hours talking to over my time here at Marvel. I've worked with John Michael Innes closely on a number of initiatives to bring more inclusive voices and stories to Marvel, including participating on panels with story editing and finding new talent. His official title is Director of Talent Relations and Publishing Recruitment. But that's just a fancy way of saying he's responsible for finding and supporting our incredible creators, past, present, and future. And who better to do that than a man who's been at Marvel since he was an intern in college? I'll let him tell you all about that. Here's my conversation with my good friend, John Michael. I'm happy to welcome John Michael Innes to Marvel's Voices. Hello, sir. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Hello to you and hello to all of those folks listening. This is very exciting. Look, man, we've been talking about this for a while, so I'm really excited for folks to get a little bit of a purview of like what you do, how you do it, how you ended up at Marvel, and you do a lot. You really do. But first... You are a fan. It's a delight to work with you because you have a true love for it. You have a true love for storytelling in unique ways. What was your first comic book? When did you decide, yo, these things, I like them? Here's the thing. I come to all things by way of Sonic the Hedgehog. I come to video games by way of Sonic the Hedgehog in 1991, Sega Genesis, and I come to comics by way of Sonic the Hedgehog. It was Sonic the Hedgehog number 14 on the cover. It says Sonic the Hedgehog and then Tails has graffitied and Tails underneath it. And Sonic is not happy. I picked it up going to the Bergen Mall in Hackensack, New Jersey with my mom. It's been a crazy ride ever since. Also, I love Tails because Tails to me is like the little sibling and I'm the little sibling, so I'm gonna blow your I'm gonna blow your mind right now. Did you realize Tails' real name, Miles Prower, if you say it slowly, it's Miles Prower. Power! Stop it! I just learned that was done intentionally. Blew my mind. That's, how did I not know I this? I love nerds so much. <laughs> I got to Marvel by way of the X-Men. You know, I was always aware of Marvel Comics, X-Men Comics. I was watching the cartoon, obviously, the 90s cartoon. I was taking karate lessons as a kid because I wanted to grow up to be a Ninja Turtle. So I had to learn martial arts. The turtle part I was going to figure out later. So I was taking martial arts classes. Nearby, there was an Encore bookstore. And after karate class, I would do one of two things. I would either go next door to the KB toy store, where I would plot on how to talk my parents into getting me the latest whatever, usually unsuccessfully, but I had my moments. Or... I would walk over to the Encore bookstore to pick up the latest Goosebumps or whatever I was reading. They had a comic rack in the Encore bookstore. And going through the comic rack, I saw an issue of X-Men that blew me away from the just from the artwork. Went through it, and it wasn't an action-adventure issue. It was 
the X-Men sitting down and having dinner. That was pretty much the whole issue. It was drawn by Joe Matarera. And I just thought the way he drew the characters were, were so interesting. And it had that, you know, Japanese manga twist to it. It was so interesting that this story about the X-Men all coming together to eat a meal was so interesting to me. No villain blew through the door, no nothing. Like, it was just character and conversation, and I fell in love with that. And from there, I did all my research, went going backwards and, and continuing forwards. And that was during the, the Onslaught saga and just started collecting from there. What was it about comics in general that spoke to you as a medium, right? Because you go from... I'm reading these things to now being steeped in the process. Yeah, I think it started with the love of artwork. At the beginning, that's very basic. I just like the way this looks. And then I fell into the stories from there, fell into the characters. And I'm an only child. So it was also something to do that was fun that I could do on my own. I didn't need to play with anyone else. I didn't even need a video game console hooked up. I just needed my 150 or $2 or 250 to pick up a comic and just become fully immersed in it. And I thought that was great and really accessible. And as I got older, it became an easy transition to go from loving toys that I needed to beg my parents to buy me because they're more expensive to collecting comics that are less expensive per comic, more expensive once you start amassing, you know, all these different books that you're you're following. But it started with the artwork and then because of my love for art and my wanting to be an artist, it just helped fuel that drive and that desire in me. So the more I drew, the more I came back to comics and understood the storytelling. So one fueled and helped drive the other. Did you feel in reading the comics when you were younger that you were represented? And like for you, were there any characters or any writers or artists, right, that really resonated with you or like you really were able to go, I could do that? Yes, not many. Because diversity has always been a thing that felt just out of reach. So not many, but Jaleel White as the voice of Sonic, that did matter to me. And the fact that Jaleel White was Sonic made me feel like, well, then Sonic's black. <laughs> Sonic's black. But that really isn't so strange for young black nerds coming up. And, you know, just talking about how we come to to this medium, how we come to Marvel. For most people, it's not the books first. A lot of people in either underserved communities or places that don't have comic book stores or no access or income to pay for comic books on a regular basis, they come to these things by way of the TV set. And that's why, like, the X-Men cartoon was so influential. Spider-Man cartoons are so influential. Now, the films. We come to comics, for the most part, in a slightly different way, which sometimes affects the way that we relate to the characters, the way that we relate to the stories. But going back to your question, as far as representation, there weren't a lot of 
young black characters or even older black characters in the comics. But the one Marvel character and Marvel writer that I connected with in a very important way was Black Panther, Marvel Knights Black Panther by Christopher Priest. I was in at the Big Apple Comic-Con at the basement of St. Paul's Church, and I came upon all of the Marvel Knights books and this cover, beautifully painted Black Panther cover by Mark Teixeira. And flipping through it very quickly, I realized, oh, this isn't just your average superhero comic. The art was painterly. The story looked grounded and real. I actually have that issue right here on my wall. It was really important for me at the time, and I picked it up. That run became one of the most important runs for me in my development, not only as a comic book fan, but as a creator of art and a creator of stories. So that was the one book, aside from Jaleel White as the voice of Sonic the Hedgehog, um, Black Panther and Christopher Priest really set something off inside of me and kept me coming back to this medium. All right, so you are also an artist. I have actually bought some of your art. It is on my wall. I appreciate you. Wonderful. What is your journey after high school? How did you get here? How did you get to this point at Marvel? So all through high school, I continued to draw, focusing a lot on comic book art. Not necessarily sequential storytelling, but just drawing the characters. I went to Rutgers University in Newark. I wanted to figure out how to marry art and money because I did not want to be a quote-unquote starving artist, and I had no idea what comic book artists were getting paid or what traditional fine artists were getting paid. So I came to graphic design. Rutgers Newark has a really great graphic design program, and it taught me to more than anything, outside of using programs and stuff like that, it taught me to think like a designer and see with a designer's eye. Uh, seeing visual relationships between images and between images and words. That was really great. And I got my degree in graphic design. But for my honors college thesis project, you could really do whatever you wanted. It just needed to be of a certain level of quality, yes, and effort, research. So for that thesis statement, I decided to go back to my roots and forget all that graphic design stuff that I just learned. I'm going to make a 93-page graphic novel. Ambitious. Very ambitious. I bit off way more than I could chew. I wrote it, penciled, inked, colored lettered, printed, and bound the book. Top to bottom, soup to nuts, I created this thing. That was a monster of a project. And it took me a good amount of time to do. I think it took me two semesters, a full school year. During that time, I interned at Marvel. 
I swore, hey, if they let me in the door, they're going to have to like drag me out. You let my foot in? I'm not leaving. And in my conversations, in my intern interviews, I talked about this project I was working on. So really, I felt like all of the things I learned at Marvel, I could apply immediately. You know, if I'm an intern in the editorial group and I'm learning how to better place word balloons because that's super important and moving the eye around the the page is very important. That's something that I can take and apply to this graphic novel that I'm working on tonight when I go home. It was the kind of experience that I think the folks that hired me, shout out to Nicole Booz, John Barber, and Ralph Macchio, the learnings that I took, I was able to apply immediately, but also they felt like they were able to have an impact on me and true to form still here. And I get to call you colleague, which is pretty dope. Indeed. I love that your brain thinks in this way of practical application of key core knowledge. It's so fun getting to work with you because there are things that in my gut, I'd be like, something's not right. And you'd be like, the line's too dark. And I'm like, the line's too dark. (laughs) I don't know where to focus. And these are like these very small but very important things when it comes to the overall composition of a story within a comic book. But you have a very unique role in the larger process of creating comic books. Yeah, I think that the way that I look at art and analyze the different parts of sequential storytelling, because of the way Marvel works and the speed at which we have to do a thing and move on to the next thing. I almost don't get to internalize that process. I don't get to internalize the way I might review a page or I might review an artist or I might look at a portfolio and know if they have the thing or not. It moves so quickly, it makes it seem like I'll just know. That's not true. There, There is a lot that goes into and there are things that I can break down to you if I have the time to do it. It's just we never have the time to do it. (laughs) So, But what it has done between being an artist, between looking at a lot of work and, and asking myself, what do I like about this? Why does it work? Or why do I think it does not work? Those are the things that over time just become hardwired into you and then as it gets applied to my job, as it pertains to reviewing work, reviewing artists, and being able to talk to an artist about things they may need to work on or ways they can improve, this becomes just part of the tool set that gets used to have those conversations or do that work quickly so that you can go on to the other thing that may be less artistically focused and more business-minded, which is another big piece of my job description. So speaking of job descriptions, you have this really fancy title. You are the Director of Talent Relations and Publishing Recruitment. So for those who may not know, how long have you been at Marvel? Uh, 15 years. Oh, man, that's a whole teenager. It is. With a, with a learner's permit, yeah. a whole teenager. Yeah. And through that journey, I've picked up so much learning along the way. You know, I've learned all kinds of business development and sales strategy stuff just 
by way of osmosis, just being here and listening and soaking up information. And, and then I moved over to the theatrical side, working on the films with our promotional partners that come onto the films when Marvel brought its promotions in-house. So I was part of that team that started that up, marketing, biz dev, and, and now talent relations and talent marketing um, in all the ways that that turns into other opportunities to create business with our other lines of business, all the other groups under Marvel. And that includes like stuff like YA novels, that includes stuff like games, that includes and tabletop games, not just video games. Like there's so many things like folks just don't know that's happening. That's right. And I love that because now you're kind of in this precipice of being this director of talent relations and publishing recruitment with all of this, like this bastion of knowledge from over the last 15 years. What does your role look like now, particularly as it relates to diversity and inclusion? At its most basic, what I do is try to create connections across lines of business with talent. So for example, if the games team is looking to work with specific talent on a, on a new game that's coming up and they want talent that is either specific to a character and have that knowledge base or have other very specific attributes, they will come to us and we will make recommendations for talent to them to reach out to. It may be creating or designing a costume for the next video game. It may be writers to work on the story of an upcoming game. Outside of the games team, working very closely with our digital media group and the various needs that they may have, because whether it's games, digital media, consumer products, the beating heart of Marvel is the comic books. And the beating heart of the comic books is Marvel's talent. So you always want to create authenticity with the audience. And the best way to do that is to tap into the talent. That is something that I am always working on. Now, as it pertains to diversity and inclusion, we've been looking at this with a multifaceted approach. It starts with recruitment of talent, of diverse talent. And when we talk about recruitment, we have to talk about the ways that talent comes to Marvel and the ways that Marvel finds itself in front of talent, which goes back to what I said initially about the ways that most people of color find Marvel, which is not through the books. So I had to think about that fact and ask the question, well, how do we change that? How do we get in front of people of color? How do we get in front of the LGBTQ plus community? How do we, instead of waiting for people to come to us, how do we actively get in front of them, even if it means going to places, going to events that we wouldn't have thought to go before? We know the big Comic-Cons, we know the big art schools, and for a while, to be very honest, that was kind of where everyone went. And I think you talked right. about something earlier, which is this idea of barrier of entry. 
right? Exactly. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, your barrier of entry to get into a Comic-Con or your barrier of entry was traveling, right? It's not right. saying there was none, but it was very different. And if you talk to folks like you and I both have, the old editors, the old writers, folks who've been here for a while, someone showed up with their portfolio, they showed the portfolio, you went through it, you either got a meeting or you didn't get a meeting. And then that was it, right? There wasn't Instagram. You didn't have Twitter. You weren't getting images from artists in South Africa the day they posted them. And it changes and kind of democratizes who's out there and who wants to get in the space. Like, I think kind of the work that you're doing, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but correct me if I'm wrong, is this idea of we're now catching up with the fact that you've got Comic-Cons that are focused on voices that are different. You've got indigenous Americans with Comic-Cons. You've got the Latinx festivals. You know, shout out to Frederick Aldama, who's doing a lot of work in Austin right now. You've got folks like John Jennings, who helped found Comic-Cons focused on Black folks, people within the diaspora, on two different sides. Or people like in Chicago at the American Writers Museum, you know, Carrie Cranston is the president there and he loves comics. He is always finding opportunities to elevate comics and connect kids to it. And that's just a broader spectrum, right? Because there's so many more people to find. There's so many more places to be. And so I think some of the work that you're doing is catching up with where it needs to be because now it's not just like these people aren't going to cons. It's like these people are literally putting their sequential art in other places and portfolio review has changed. Right. Portfolio review has changed. Barrier of entry has changed. We want to continue to change it. We want to continue to break those barriers down. And going a step further, we want to also talk to the folks that haven't gotten to that point yet. So we want to talk to the college student who is interested in sequential art, but they don't have a portfolio yet. We want to figure out how to talk to them and tell them what's important to put in their portfolio. So we're figuring out how to use social media to our advantage, but also physically get in front of people and look at their work and give them an opportunity. So both of us are, are huge comic book fans. That is abundantly clear. I bow to your your memory because it is impeccable. I don't remember the first comic book store I ever walked into. Not going to lie. And that's comics. Cedar Lane. Teaneck, New Jersey. See, this is why I enjoy talking to you. So why do you feel like the work you do is so important, not just as a person who works at Marvel, but as a fan? I'll tell you because people don't understand how important representation is because they've never had to deal with being underrepresented or misrepresented. And as a black man, misrepresentation of who I might be as a person is a real cultural thing that you grow up facing. So to be able to open a comic book, this thing that we all love and enjoy, and see people that look like me being portrayed heroically like everyone else is the the kind of thing that it doesn't just warm my heart. It it's it's necessary. We owe it to I owe it to young kids of different 
creeds and cultures to bring about more diversity as best I can or shine a light on Marvel's diversity, shine a light on these characters that make them feel seen as much as I can. And that, you know, starts to feel really corny, but it's true. It's it's just true because as a kid, you don't see a lot of people that look or act like you. And sometimes you can just, you can get numb to it. And that's not how we foster creativity in young people and create more creative people of color and diverse creatives. I'm always looking at artists. I'm always looking for talent that's ready. And if you have a Instagram page or something like that, that I can take a look at your work and possibly show it around town, I'm happy to do that. And it's all in supporting the larger diversity, inclusion, representation, and cultural initiatives that Marvel is very focused on. This is just awesome. And it's really just an incredible pleasure working with you. I am so excited for folks to see all the things that are coming. Me too. Me too. Thank you for taking this time out of your day. My pleasure. John Michael is truly the best. Our pool of incredibly talented comic creators wouldn't be nearly as rich and diverse without the work he does. Next week on the show, I'm talking to Will Tay, the production designer of Marvel Studios' Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. So make sure you come back for that. Marvel's Voices is produced by Isabel Robertson, Zachary Goldberg, Cara McGurk-Allison, and me, Angelique Rocher. Our senior manager of audio production and development is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Emily Godfrey. And our executive producer is Jill Dupont. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamal Wainaina.